0: Hello and welcome back to New Books in the American West, a channel on the New Books Network of Podcasts. I'm Steve Hausman. I'm an assistant professor in the history department at the University of St. Thomas, and I'm your host for today's interview. And I'm speaking with Sarah Keyes. Dr. Keyes is an assistant professor of history at the University of Nevada and is the author of the new book American Burial Ground, which came out with the University of Pennsylvania Press last year in
1: 2023. Welcome to the New Books. Network Sarah, good to have you here today. Thank you, and thanks thanks for the invitation, Steve. I'm really looking forward to our conversation this afternoon. Yeah,
0: uh, that makes two of us. And <laughs> why don't we why don't we get started by just hearing a little bit about you? Tell us uh, a little about yourself. Uh, tell us about your background. And I'm particularly interested in how you became interested in history.
1: Yeah, no, that's a great question. And I mean, honestly, and this this could be true for yourself as well. I can't remember a time when i wasn't interested in history i just <laughs> that's definitely true for me yeah <laughs> okay, now that you good. It, yeah 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 good we're on the same boat then um you know it was just one of those things where i was always curious about other people other times other places and then when i was you know about 8 or 9 i remember getting the chance to take driving trips around the American West. So I grew up in California, and we had a chance chance to do that, um, you know, particularly across the Southwest um, and more up and down the Pacific Coast. But I remember getting to do that when I was eight or nine, and, and that really solidified history for me. It was something I'd been reading about, and a lot of the things I've been reading were sort of you know skewed toward the east coast you know revolutionary war like civil war as a conflict between north south all of these other things um. and then we went out into the landscape and we went to you know national park service sites we were just talking about about your um, wonderful opportunity that's coming up your fellowship with the national park service so we started to go to those sites and see different types of places and events that were being interpreted and it just blew me away and specifically, I remember going to Chaco Canyon in New Mexico and being in that space. And that was the first time that I, coming from my particular background, had been exposed to the deep, deep history and the deep, deep native history that informs our continent and informs US history, which is really relatively short when we consider that long, longer trajectory. And so it was really from being at Chaco and then reading everything I could that was age appropriate about that place and the Southwest more generally, that really ignited my passion for understanding more about the past and for wanting to know more about the American West. Um, and I remember I told a, I've told told a couple people a version of this this story over the years, and they're always like, really, when you were eight? Um, but then I was talking to a woman recently who, um, you know, is well versed in sort of education and child development. And she said, you know, that's around the age, like 8, 9, 10, that people start to get a sense of, of deeper time and they become more interested in it. So, you know, I guess I was right on track there.
0: That's fascinating. And actually, uh, while, while you were talking and, and telling your story, I was kind of thinking about that, because I ask this question to all of my guests. And while well, not across the board, often I'll get an answer that, that's at least in some way in the galaxy of what you just said, that it's you, often this kind of childhood experience. And history is such a great, <laughs> I mean, you, got, you, you and I are both biased in this regard, thinking this, but history is such a great way for a curious child to kind of sink their teeth into the world around them, right? Because it's at this age when you're learning like, oh, there's more to the world than just me and just my family and just my home and just my neighborhood and history really opens up that sort of view of the world around you so uh yeah that's that that's really interesting
1: yeah no i think you're absolutely right and i think that you know as historians right we do this professionally um that's really one of the things that our discipline and our profession can i think really bring to conversations that span Mm -hmm. the present and the past right Mm -hmm. like the ability to consider other people's experiences and perspectives the ability to see ourselves um as part of something larger that's longer in time and more interconnected with other people than we might expect and You know, I think that's a way it actually gives people meaning, um, Mm -hmm. even as it repositions us outside of our own individual identities and perspectives. So, yeah, I absolutely agree with you.
0: I'm curious also what brought you to the topic of this book. And you and I were, were chatting a bit before we started recording here. Um, and I was, I was telling you that I was very excited to see that this book came out because I feel like there's been kind of a, a dearth of study of the Overland Trail. You know, when I teach American West, I ask my students about sort of the, their impressions of what the American West is, what kind of kind of cultural ideas they associate with the West. And, you know, wagon trains going West is, for better or for worse, always one of them. And yet, at least from where I'm sitting, I feel like we haven't seen a particularly large amount of scholarship about this 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 part of western history that that looms very large in people's minds. So I'm curious about the path that you took to to the topic of this book.
1: Yeah, no, that's a great question and you know, I have a similar experience with my students. One of the exercises I like to do and the favorite in one of the favorite classes that I teach my upper division course on the US West is I have them, I have them map the West, but I also have them include iconic events or moments. And just like you said, wagon trains heading west is always on their maps. There's always a little doodle drawing. Um, some of them are quite wonderful and elaborate because I am often lucky to have fine arts majors in my classes, um, but there's always that drawing of the wagons headed west. And that's really, the the crux of that, uh, iconic nature of this migration was what really motivated me to want to do a new scholarly study on it and like sort of the solidification of my interest in history when i was you know 8 9 my interest in the history of the overland trail really grew from museum sites and after college you know i i was Thinking about what I wanted to do with my life and I wanted, I knew I wanted to do something with history, but I wasn't sure if I wanted to go to graduate school, or if I did go to graduate school, what sort of program I wanted to do. And so one of the things that I did for a few years was, you know, worked sort of random office jobs and then tried to explore history careers as much as possible. So I had an internship at the Smithsonian, which was fantastic. And then I also was able to have an internship at uh, Fort Casper Museum in Casper, Wyoming, which you're probably familiar with this, Steve, but it kind of sits, you know, kind of in the center of the state. And uh, Casper was important because it was a major uh, crossing on the trail, a Platte River crossing. And then it later is important because Fort Casper becomes a Civil War era fort. And so I was able to get this paid internship. So I was really excited to go out there to spend a summer in Wyoming, and I was just outside all the time. And I was just fascinated by the people who came to visit this crossing. And I was fascinated by how much they knew about the immigrant experiences. And I was also really struck by the fact that this history and this migration hadn't been considered as much by academic Western historians for really what was at the time, you know, roughly 30 years or so of scholarship that had overlooked this story or, or, or attempted to move beyond it. And I think the drive to move beyond it was for all the right, right reasons, um, to think beyond Turner's concept of the frontier, to recognize the diversity of the American West. Um, but in speaking to these folks who were so passionate about trail history in reading books on the US West, like, you know, Patty Limerick's work or John McFarger's early study of the Overland Trail, I was pretty convinced that this was an important topic because people still cared about it. And I was also pretty convinced that given the richness of the source material, the diaries, the letters, the journals, the memoirs, the reminiscences, you know, the popular cultural productions, right? The iconic visuals of white topped wagons, that there was something that could be said that was new about this trail and something that could be said that would actually help to hopefully push the study of the American West and our understanding of 19th century US history forward. So I really owe it to those, uh, to those visitors.
0: Before we get too deep into the book itself, and and specifically the topic of death on the trail, which is what so much of this book is about, I'm wondering if we can maybe just take a, a, we can zoom out a bit here, and maybe you can provide us with a little bit of context. So, you know, like my students, I bet many people know, or if you're like me, probably think that you know, even if you don't really know, something about the the Overland Trail and its significance, but can you maybe give us like a very brief kind of thumbnail
1: history of the kind of, uh, the history that we're talking about here? Sure, absolutely. So when I think about that intro to the Overland Trail, I'm often thinking, you know, over 250,000 people who take multiple routes across the continent to the Pacific uh, in the middle decades of the 19th century. So we're talking 1840s and 1850s. And these are people who are pulled west by the promise of opportunity. So absolutely, the California gold rush, the 49ers, that is central to this story of overland migration. Um, But we also know because of the, um, you know, iconic nature of the Oregon Trail game and families and farming, that people are also pulled west by the opportunity of fertile farming lands in California and also um, in Oregon. And that this opportunity is very much um, one that is supported by the federal government. Um, And so that's a big part of the story. And it's often remembered in this positive way as people going west for these wonderful opportunities for themselves and their families. Um, But you also have push factors out of the United States that are less positive. So we think about economic downturns and recessions, like the kinds of things we've dealt with uh, recently in our history in the 21st century United States. Um, you also think about groups of people who are emigrating because they don't have the opportunities that they want to have or should have as members of the United States in the mid 19th century. So, you know, members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, colloquially known as Mormons, that's a good example of people who travel Trouble West because they're pushed out. Um, you also see, you know, people who just can't get those economic opportunities that they're hoping for in the United States. So so young men whose families might pool cash to help support their journeys. Um, there's a great, you know, diversity of of people who are emigrating for, for multiple reasons, people who are on sort of a range of, uh, they have sort of a range of monetary support and, and access. And historians have really focused on the 1840s and 1850s. And one of the things I do in my book is I draw this migration out longer, because I think it's really important to criti- and critical to recognize that people are still migrating during the 1860s. So it's not like the Civil War starts in 1861 and everybody start, stops moving west. In fact, some historians have done excellent work showing the ways in which the Civil War pushed more people west. They were trying to escape the violence in border states um, on the Western edge of the United States. Um, And then we also see people moving west throughout the 1860s because we still have these opportunities. So California gold is not the only um, gold rush or mining rush of this time period, right? Just think about uh, Colorado in 1859, and there's many, many others. Uh, Montana as well is another good example. Um, And so this is really a a migration that, even as it has loomed so large in the American imaginary as white top covered wagons going to Oregon and California, 1840 to 1860, is in some ways even bigger than that. um, Because it continues throughout the 1860s, because even after the railroads completed in 1869, people are still using wagons to get across the continent um, and then also because the way that people continue to write about and memorialize this experience, you know, down to this very day, people are still um, saving these diaries and documents and, and still publishing them.
0: So I have one other kind of con- contextual question uh, for you before we get into the, the kind of narrative of the book and start talking about these trails. And that's uh, about death, because a lot of this book is about, death along the trail and how people made sense of death and how it shaped sort of memories of of westward movement, movement, excuse me, in general. So what was the role of death in people's lives in the United States in the mid 19th century to kind of ask it, ask it bluntly, what was people's relationship to death?
1: And in what ways was it different or maybe not so different from today? Hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. That's such a central part of the book. You know, I was gesturing to the diversity of this migration, and how long this migration lasts, right? It's a multi-decade process. And one of the things that really knits this entire story together, and which I see is central to the experience and meaning of this migration, is that experience of death. So risking death along the way, the potential of dying and being buried along the trail, which perhaps some 6,600 immigrants were, um, and then the need to leave the dead behind, but then also remember them. And this process of um, losing a loved one, burying them, and then leaving them in their grave is a process that was so common in the 19th century United States. It sort of, you know, in terms of the frequency with, with, with which it occurred, it, it bordered on The mundane that it was something that could really happen at any time and that it braided into people's lives um, in a way that we just don't think about death in the 21st century united states Um, but even as it braided into people's lives it doesn't mean it didn't matter and that it wasn't exceptionally significant in fact very much the opposite Um, people living in pre-antibiotic united states they cannot control death they, they are almost completely powerless to prevent it coming, whether it's from disease or accidents or, or other things. <laughs> but what they can control and which becomes really critical, especially for these white Protestants who form sort of the bulk of the immigrants and they also dominate it culturally in terms of the writings and memory of it. What people can control and do control in the 19th century United States is their responses to death. And so the rituals of dying and the rituals surrounding burial, and then the continued connection to the dead through fingering locks of their hair, gazing on miniature portraits, and most importantly, visiting their grave sites become absolutely essential and, crit- and critical to people's life ways. And so death is completely wrapped up in people's lives, um, I just did my, uh, you know, my annual blood test, whatever, where doctors today they want to get a baseline on things like your cholesterol and make sure you're healthy. And then you can read all of these articles about, you know, what are the exercises you should do and how much you should exercise and should you go with the Mediterranean diet or whatever else we have available. There's this constant discourse of health and wellness that's all about quality of life, but also longevity. and. People just didn't have those kinds of opportunities in the 19th century. And in fact, one of the ways that I illustrate this in the book, and really actually how I open the book, is with a version of a common phrase in the 19th century, which was, if I live. So, you know, we might say, well, this summer, I'm going to be traveling to, you know, Southern California. I'm going on a beach trip this summer. And people in the 19th century, if they were planning a trip, like the trip across the Overland Trail, they would say, well, you know, um, I would really like to take this, this trip next year, but they would say, I'll do it if I live. That's just how you qualified your future plans because you couldn't predict what might happen to you. It's a very
0: different relationship to like time itself and to the idea of, of the future too. It's, uh, it's, it's kind of stark and fascinating to think about.
1: Yes, absolutely.
0: So let's talk about some of these trails then, and uh, you begin the story with what is perhaps a kind of a surprising trail for, for a book like this. You begin by talking about the, tra- the trails of Indian removal in the West uh, uh, in the 1820s and 30s and, and 40s uh, in particular. So can you talk a bit about these trails and especially what role death and grave sites and burials played in both debates surrounding this, you know, really American tragedy and
1: on the trails themselves? Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. That's a great question. Um, and those forced removal trails, I consider those in the, the first chapter of the book because They really set the stage for the voluntary westward migration to oregon and california um you know it's overlaps a little bit um chronologically temporally as you mentioned but the voluntary westward migration that i'm focused on really um, comes after those trails of forced removal and i'm able to start the book there because it is a book that moves chronologically and it makes sense to do so but that chapter really came at the end of my Process of analysis and research, and as I was working on my materials, one of the questions I kept getting from you know advisors or readers or other folks I talked to was, okay, so you're seeing death everywhere on the trail. We're all 19th century historians. We understand this this concept of how death works in the 19th century. Like, so what? What's different about your your story? What's different about what's happening on this migration? Um, what is what is unique like what is what is the contribution here hasn't this happened in other places and as I started working on the project I thought well one of the things that makes the overland trail and the experience of death really distinct is the great distance of this migration right so over 2,000 miles westward across the continent having to leave your loved ones and to a place that you may na- never be able to to return in a place that you can't even precisely locate because you just don't have that grounded sense of where you are. So that was certainly distinctive about my migration. Um, But as I continued to do research and read and think about these conversations, what I realized was that on these trails of forced removal, Native peoples had had a distinct, yet somewhat similar experience of needing, being forced to bury their loved ones in a space that wasn't theirs and a space to which they wouldn't be able to return. And so, for example, the Cherokee migration is often referred to as the Trail of Tears, right? That these people were forcibly moved by the US government against their treaty agreements from their homelands to Indian territory to Oklahoma. And what I realized in doing additional research and and seeing how Native peoples talked about these trails is that these were also trails of graves. That as I was seeing on the voluntary westward migration, there was this trauma and dislocation of family members strung out along these routes. And then as I did more research and dug deeper, what I realized is that these were stories of traumatic dislocation and traumatic loss on the trail, but that these were also a way in which Native people launched a wide-ranging and widespread anti-colonial campaign against U.S. dispossession. So Oftentimes, when historians of the 19th century have written about the deaths and graves of Native peoples, they've written about them as fodder for white Americans' fallacious mythology of the vanishing Indian. So this racist idea that Native peoples are doomed to die and disappear, they will fade away for white civilization, For whites' ability to take their land. And so, in this fallacious narrative, graves of Native people are signals and signs that the vanishing Indian mythology is true and that white people can come in and take their land. Um, And Alexis de Tocqueville, that famous observer of United States uh, government and culture, In the early 19th century basically describes this vanishing Indian mythology for what for the fallacy that it is, and he says it's a way. For white Americans to basically get up in the morning and be able to look themselves in the mirror because they're not taking any responsibility for what they as individuals or their government is doing to harm and push out native people so he's absolutely right on on that. But as I did more research, I also came to see the ways in which Native peoples across the United States um, were combating this fallacious mythology of the vanishing Indian, and were in fact pointing to their dead and their graves as in some cases, signals of US violence, and always as enduring markers that their homelands were and always would be native space. And so instead of graves of native peoples as being monuments that whites could appropriate, native peoples like the Cherokee principal chief, John Ross said, no, our people's graves are signals that we are still here and connected to this land and that this land will always be native space. And so this is a struggle that happens in writing, in discourse in messages that Ross and other Native leaders send to United States leaders like uh, President Andrew Jackson, who's one of the foremost proponents of removal. Um, But it's also a process that happens on the landscape. So even when um, Native peoples have exhausted sort of their last campaign to prevent forced removal they're still maintaining their graves and they're protecting them and taking care of them before they're forced west. So in some cases that might mean bringing in new marble monuments to mark the dead before they leave. In other cases, it means that they've decided to to hide their graves um, so that white settlers who come in don't desecrate them. And then in time and time again, another thing I saw was the way in which these really important Ceremonies for the dead and burial rites were another way that Native people pushed back against their forced removal and telling United States um, members of the of the um, sort of people who were supposed to force them west, like, hey, we're not ready to leave yet. Like, we need we need to finish these rituals for our dead first, and then these then these um, deportation conductors being forced to just wait until they were done, um, and so there's something much different than I think what we thought of as the vanishing Indian story going on in the early 19th century. And it's also something that's very much critical to how white Protestants who travel later think about their migration and think about the importance of the dead on the trail. Because with native people saying, hey, our dead are here. This is a a significant marker of our claim to these lands. Um, When white immigrants start dying on the trails They see that as a failure, that they're having to leave their dead behind, that they don't have these graves close to them, but they're also seeing their dead as a need of uh, protection, um, commemoration, and importantly, marking on the landscape. And so later on in the 19th century, these graves are gonna become some of these sort of uh, longevity claims of white settlers to lands that, that aren't theirs.
0: One of the reasons, not the only reason certainly, but but one of the reasons why all of the various trails into the West could be so deadly was disease, which was uh, a concern across the board in in the nineteenth century United States, but uh, could be particularly deadly on these trails into the West. Uh, and one particular killer was cholera. So I'm wondering if you could explain a bit about disease on these trails and maybe a little bit of the biology and the history of cholera and why it was such a particular risk uh, for, for people heading West uh, generally.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a that's a great question. And we sort of briefly gestured to disease earlier when we were talking about just the the ways in which death in the 19th century is everywhere. Um and they don't have antibiotics and they don't really understand how diseases work. And disease is the primary uh, killer of immigrants on on the Overland Trail West and accidents come next. You know, it's you know, if you, you fall out of a wagon and get crushed, that's not good. Firearm accidents are also a problem, especially for immigrants who some of whom are quite heavily armed. So accidental shootings occur um, but disease is really the biggest killer and also the biggest fear of immigrants. So one of the the major contributions of a classic comprehensive history of the Overland Trail, John Unruh's Plains Across, was debunking the old concept that some had that most immigrants were killed by native peoples as they traveled west. That's absolutely not true. Um, and Unruh really you know, honed in on disease and he was quite, quite right to do that. And so there's a variety of diseases that immigrants can get. But one of the things that happens during this migration is that at the very same time, at the very same time that we're about to see a surge in immigration across the Overland Trail and a surge that's caused by the pull and lure of gold in California, At that very same time, what we see is we see one of the most frightening and deadliest diseases of the 19th century return to the United States. And that disease is cholera. So cholera returns to the United States um, and it will come out onto the trail in 1849. Now, this, this is not the first time that cholera has been in the United States. And in fact, cholera was um, a factor in increasing mortality rates for native peoples along these trails of forced removal that we already discussed. But it's going to take on a new role when it comes on to the Overland Trail. And the fact that cholera returns to the United States at the very same time that migration across the trail is increasing is what's going to lead to this rise in mortality rates caused by cholera. So cholera is caused by a bacteria. It can um, survive in, in water and so it's often, it's often passed on when people drink infected water. Um, the waters that immigrants are drinking, for instance, in the Platte River along the main trunk of the trail, is a great sort of incubator for cholera because they're relatively warm, um, and they don't move too fast so that cholera can can survive in that water for for a long time. And then, you know, because of the crowdedness of the trail, People are drinking from the same water sources. Um, they're relieving themselves in places that are close to those water sources, um, and then they're not washing their hands um, and they're sharing, you know, cups and all of these other things. And so cholera is able to spread relatively quickly and relatively easily um, amongst the immigrant population. And you know, as we talked about death is everywhere in the 19th century United States but some types of death are worse than others and one of the ways that 19th century Americans combat the fear of death is through embracing these really important rituals that include the ability to visit with um, the dying and so on your deathbed this is your chance to say goodbye to your family, it's time for you to express acceptance that you know death is coming, and also a time for you to share any sort of moral or religious guidance you would like to give to your family before you leave them. And cholera makes that pretty much impossible because people can die very, very quickly. You might seem completely fine, you might show symptoms, you're dead in less than 24 hours, sometimes just a couple of hours. And so the rapidity with which cholera kills makes it really frightening and it challenges these elaborate rituals around dying. The other reason why cholera is so fearful is that it creates these really grotesque symptoms before death. So the way the cholera bacteria works is that it causes rapid dehydration, which means you're losing fluids um, very rapidly from you know all parts of your body. And the dehydration can be so rapid that you might get cyanosis in which you turn blue. And so these people can look corpse-like before they're even dead. So this idea of a tranquil, peaceful deathbed scene where you're laid out in comfort people are able to visit with you and speak with you. That's simply not possible with cholera. You might look horrific. You might have turned blue. You might also be experiencing cramping so rough and so hard that that in one case it was described as, you know, ripping people's hips out of their, their sockets. So it's a really, really horrible way to go. And then the fact that they're traveling on the trail makes it very, very hard for them to provide any sort of palliative care uh, for these immigrants as they're traveling. And so for immigrants, color really becomes the fearful specter of the trail. And so this, this racist idea that native peoples were just going to attack immigrants at any time, immigrants are recalculating as they're traveling what the real threat to their life is. And some of these immigrants are saying, you know, I was worried about you know what they call Indians or what they called Indians when I started out on the trail, but now that I know you know this company from Ohio has cholera, and I heard about a company from Illinois behind us that also has cholera. They're saying you know the scariest thing are these other immigrants, and we've got to get out of here. And so you see these little pods of people shoot off the trail trying to avoid the disease, um, and some are successful, and many are not. So again,
0: thinking about the practicalities of of the trail um you know anyone that's driven a long distance uh heading west across uh, North America. You know, this is this is not a, a new re- revelation or anything, but it's the the terrain is incredibly varied, right? You go from biome to biome as you travel west, and you know that's one thing to experience from, uh, you know, the front seat uh, behind the windshield of your Honda or whatever, right? It's a totally other thing if you are in a covered wagon, you know, at best, right? So I'm wondering because the trail covered so many thousands of miles and so many different types of terrain, right? Uh, how did uh, people moving West, how did they think about the trail and the different parts of the trail were some parts of the trail more closely associated with death and with danger than others were some parts actually deadlier than others.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, that's such a good question. And I think that, that it also really captures, um, the importance of the, the landscape and the environment to this trail experience just not only the fact that they're traveling so many miles, but as you said, they're going through so many different biomes. Right. And so immigrants know this and they know this before they they leave. You know, they're they've been reading stories like John C. Fremont's, you know, journals of his exploration and Francis Parkman's account, um, the Oregon Trail, and they have expectations of what these landscapes will be like. And one of the things that they were hoping before the cholera epidemics really got after them is they were hoping that the plains and so sort of these initial period after they've left the settled United States, they're hoping this is going to be a wondrous experience, that they're going to, you know, get to see buffalo and be out in the open air, and you know, so this is at the start of their their journey too, right? So the weather should be pretty good, and they should be be feeling like they have enough resources for themselves and their livestock. So there's a big hope that the plains will be actually a very healthful place where maybe people who were, you know, tired or despondent, um, would actually sort of come alive, and you know, cholera pulls that idea out from under their feet for sure. Um, And and when in fact it's the most deaths from cholera occur on that section of the trail, it's only later when they get farther west that they start to to die down more in terms of the rates. Um, But the other preconception that immigrants have, and that plays a big role in the experience of the trail and the ways in which the trail becomes told as a story of um, death and burial is the idea of desert landscape. So places like the Great Basin, the Mojave, um, these are places that white Protestants, farmers who are used to you know the Eastern woodlands see as landscapes of death. There's not enough water there's not enough grass for their livestock. And these desert spaces become the iconic moments of death and destruction. Uh, One of the things that's that's hard to get at with the trail sources is, um, you know, how many people died and where exactly people died. Um, But certainly, We do see struggles across these desert landscapes and we see a struggle, not only for human immigrants, but for their livestock. So the idea that if you run out of water, you might lose your oxen, which is your means of mobility is absolutely devastating and absolutely frightening. So when we have representations of these deserts, it's it's certainly a death, not only of people, um, but also of livestock. And one of the things that I find really fascinating about these sections of the trail is the ways in which the trash that people abandon along the way becomes signs and signals of this destruction. So, broken axles or wagon wheels or you know bits of wagons um, left behind that are you know sort of completely stripped of any signals that you know human life has been present in this desert landscape that all comes sort of wrapped up in this idea of the trail as one of death and destruction
0: i have kind of a a maybe a basic question that is uh that's related to this and this is something that that you talked about uh a little bit before in relation to uh to the various trails of tears and to, to to the removal process um among native people earlier in the century but what did people, generally speaking, do with the bodies of those who died along the trail? I mean, I'm just thinking about the different kinds of landscapes, about um, the fact that, you know, you only have so much supplies, so you have to keep moving. What did people do with the bodies of those who died? And how did that change their kind of relationship to the idea of death and to those who had, who had departed, to those who had died?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this is, your question is probably uh, that's kind of the question that everybody in the 19th century had too. And so one of the things that we get in the immigrant sources is we get this absolutely detailed description of what people did with the bodies of the dead. And they're providing this description really for two reasons. They're providing it because they know, they know because they're part of this culture of death in the 19th century, they know that this is what the relatives, the loved ones of those who weren't present at the death and time of burial want to know, they need to know, they need to know that the body was cared for. So for 19th century white Protestants, the body needs to be kept as intact and cared for as possible because that's going to ensure that the dead will be ready for the coming resurrection. And so they describe what they do with the bodies in great detail for that reason. And then they also describe in great detail these burials because they want to prove and demonstrate and show that they might be on this Migration. They might be trying to get across the plains and the Great Basin and over the Sierra Nevada before winter comes as quickly as possible. That's their goal. But they also want to prove that they haven't abandoned the cultural expectations and mores of the United States. And in articulating what they did for the dying and then in how they cared for the body, they are also articulating their commitment to and upholding of those cultural expectations. And so they write about these burials because it is so important for them to do whatever they can to make burials on the trail adhere as closely as possible to burials in the United States. And so despite the difficulties of having the necessary tools and the time to dig graves, they do it and they do whatever it takes. There are instances where they have lost someone, an immigrant has lost someone in their company and they are far from wood and you need wood if you need a coffin. They're far from wood and so they'll wrap the body, put it back in the wagon and carry it seven, 10 miles to some places place where they're pretty sure they'll be able to find wood. In other instances, where they have some spare wood around, they'll go from wagon to wagon and, and you know, John and Sam and George will all give a board an extra board from their wagon and they'll use that to cobble together a box for the dead. In other cases, they can't find the wood, but they might have access to other things. They might have pieces of Cracker Barrel, they might have quilts, they might have buffalo robes, and so they will use those to wrap the dead as tightly and securely as possible. The other challenge of burial on the trail, or one of the other challenges, is just the ability to dig the grave. So if you don't have a shovel, or if you've stopped at a spot where the ground is particularly hard, what are you going to do? And the answer is that they do whatever it takes. Maybe they just have a chisel, so they'll dig into the dirt with that. Maybe they will scrape it out by hand. Um, If they can't get down, you know, roughly the six feet that they're hoping to get down they will put the body in as far down as possible and then mound dirt over the top so they're trying to replicate burials in orderly cemeteries in the united states as best they can another way that they try to replicate these burials is not only materially but also through location of the body so in 19th century cemeteries in the united states The standard for cemetery burial is one in which you are buried in a beautiful, tranquil place. There might be a tree planted near your grave that hangs overhead. You might be placed next to a small pond or brook that provides a little bit of beauty, but also the sound of water near the grave. And so immigrants will seek out those places. They'll look for a little rise on the plains where the grave might be more noticeable to later travelers so they can pay their respects. They'll go down towards the water. Um, Vincent Hoover does this for his younger brother, John. He and his family bury John close to the water because they want him to be able to to hear it, um, even in his death, to have that companionship. And then they'll also look for other dead immigrants. So this idea that you can, at least bury them next to others who come from similar backgrounds is another critical way that people locate the dead in space. And so in doing that, you get a semblance of a cemetery, even as you don't reach those standards. So I think some people have thought that the trail is about getting to a place. And so immigrants moved on as quickly as possible. But what I found in the sources is that it is absolutely critical for them to take the time and the resources that they have and do the best they can for their dead
0: it's really it's it's almost pretty it's it's moving in a lot of ways to think about you know people going to such lengths to to engage in these kinds of, of ritual processes that uh, it's it's must have been really pretty astounding reading the sources here
1: it really it really was and you know this goes back to an earlier question you asked me about you know how I got into this topic and i I think just early on from knowing how people talked about the migration and then getting an initial sense of the sources, I saw how rich they were. And it's really, it really is difficult, but also compelling to hear people tell, to hear ordinary people convey these experiences in the language of the time. So I have a, I have a wide range of folks in terms of their writing ability and, you know, also how they talked about things. You can see their personality shining through in their letters, you know, that guy who, tells his mom that he's not gonna write anymore because he t- he's tired of her asking for it, you know? Um, <laughs> but uh, that's what I loved about it, right? So I don't know if you're familiar with Dale Morgan, who was a, a, a very preeminent historian of the American West who wrote on the, the Overland Trail Diaries as well. And he, he talked about them as a mosaic in words. And that's so very much what they are these little pieces and fragments of ordinary people undertaking a journey they saw as incredibly significant and the experiences that they had and the meanings that they made from this trip
0: toward the end of the book you describe um the relationship between the the trail and people people on the trail the trails i should say and and people moving along the trails uh the relationship between those people and the trails themselves and another institution that really in a lot of ways is also very closely associated with death and i thought this was a pretty surprising and fascinating part of the book you talked about the role of the u.s army in this story of of overland movement and migration. Can you talk a bit about what role the US army plays in the West in general, and specifically in, in this movement of people that you're describing here? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, and you know, I, I spoke a little bit earlier about how a lot of historians start the trail history in 1840 and end in 1860. And that's kind of a neat pre Civil War bookend to this migration. Um, But it goes on longer than that. And so it goes on through a period of US history and history of the US West, that historians have more closely identified with the growing power presence and violence of the US military. So we know there's an uptick in military presence beginning in the Civil War period. We know because of this great work and scholarship that's become been coming out on Civil War Wests, that violence in the West is part and parcel of the Civil War, and that it will continue later after the Union has emerged victorious. But the trail history kind of falls out of that story. And this is a migration that has always been supported by the federal government and the military. John C. Fremont goes out to explore for the Army. Fort Laramie, which is one of the most important stopping points on the trail becomes a military post in part to support the immigrants and what happens during the 1860s is that this implicit sort of threat of military violence with armed men and volunteers out in the West becomes more explicit and in fact the Overland Trail immigration becomes a justification for military violence against native peoples. So both from actual and imagined attacks on overland wagons, you get retaliatory attacks by the US military that are justified, um, they say, by the fact that immigrants have been attacked first. And so you have military escorts for immigrant Trains and then you have these retaliatory expeditions and attacks in the late 19th century there's a there's a growth in these Um, and. What this means for trail history and what this means for the history of death in the West and in the 19th century United States is it means that we need to understand absolutely understand that this voluntary westward migration was never peaceful or divorced from the broader systems of violence and forced removal that was part of United States expansion. That immigrants were very much part of this bigger system and that the justification of violence against Native peoples to protect immigrants was an important thread of the attacks and the massacres that we see happen in the late 19th century. And so what I wanted to show with the part of the book that, that you mentioned was that, as you said earlier, it's absolutely moving and poignant to read these immigrant letters and diaries. And the trauma of immigrants dying on the trail is absolutely deeply felt, and it absolutely is horrific to read of, you know, a nine-year old girl who loses her father on the trail and mourns his death the rest of her life. Absolutely. But as historians, if we take a step back and see the broader context, We can also see the ways in which these immigrant suffering and sacrifice comes to justify horrific violence against native peoples in the name of retaliation or retribution and in service to a broader US project of dispossession and expansion. So as we uh,
0: begin to uh, wrap up here a bit as we kind of approach the end of our conversation. I want to return to something that we we mentioned kind of toward the outset of, of our conversation. We talked a little bit uh, at the beginning about how, you know, our students often approach the history of the American West through these um, ideas of uh, 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 these sort of cultural con- conceptions of the Overland Trail, right, and especially the Oregon Trail, right, and westward migration generally. Um, I'm wondering about memory sort of how Overland Trails and migration and the dead of the trail, how these got remembered in the immediate and kind of middle aftermath. And even more broadly speaking, what do you see as the role of the story in American popular culture? What's gotten remembered and what has become forgotten
1: over time? So I think that the the memory of these dead is is, to me, in many ways, again, like I said, with talking to those folks at Fort Casper, uh, sort of the starting point for the book. Um, Why, why are people still going out to mark these graves today? Why are, for instance, members of the Oregon California Trails Association, using cadaver dogs to try to find immigrant burials along these routes? And what I ultimately decided is going on is that this process of burial and marking the dead that was so critical to immigrants in the 19th century is a process that is still ongoing. That by the late 19th century, people are saying, you know, famously Frederick Jackson Turner, West, first Western, one of the first Western historians, is saying the West has settled. The American western experience that made us unique and exceptional and democratic is over. What do we do now? And one of the things I realized was that because the immigrant dead were left over such a broad swath of the US West, and because it was so difficult to permanently mark and protect their graves, that these narratives of loss and burial and vulnerable graves has helped to breathe life into a new type of Westering experience. And one that in which even into the 21st century, um, trail, has, trail sort of enthusiasts and um, local communities and settlers use this searching for trail graves, preserving of trail graves as a piece or an activity, That is actually in many ways very much in line with what immigrants were doing in the mid 19th century that there's more continuity there's more access. To that westward migration experience what Turner might call the frontier experience, than we might expect and that the trail dead and the need to mark them and make sacred their place in the landscape is a big part of that. So in many ways, the trail story or the trail experience in some ways persists. And then also, you know, because immigrants were traveling, they weren't putting up fences and churches or building houses as they went. These dead are really all they left behind. And so they play an outsized role in the memory of this migration because it's all that's left across this you know what's really nearly two-thirds of the continent um people imagine these immigrant dead as potentially being everywhere across the west because as you said there are so many trails they web across our continent Um, so so they play this outsized role in marking the landscape And then also because they are the dead and they are vulnerable and no longer active, they also help to support this narrative of immigrants as the ones who suffered and who were peaceful and who died. um, In the hopes of getting to the Pacific coast so it perpetuates this idea of westward expansion and the Overland trail migration as peaceful um, and under siege, Uh, one of the things I got really interested in in doing the research on the memory of these graves was how remembering the immigrant dead in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. flips what we've been thinking of in terms of memorialization of the dead in this time period, because there's a lot of work and scholarship focusing on the memory and memorialization of the Civil War dead in the same time period in the late 19th and early 20th century. But those Civil War dead are men, they're soldiers. Um, And the immigrant dead are not that. In fact, what we see is a huge focus on the graves of white women and an emphasis on their frailty, their frailness and their domesticity. And so we very much see a memorialization of the dead that unlike the military memory of the Civil War is very much in service to a sort of non-militaristic peaceful version of white westward expansion.
0: So as we begin to wrap up here, uh, one of my, my final questions, I always like to ask this as kind of a, this 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 next question is kind of like a, a summary question, um, getting my guests to think about their book as a whole. Um, I ask you to put yourself in the shoes of someone reading your book um, and then they think back to this book in a year or a couple years on down the line or down the trail, we might say. Um, What would you hope that reader comes away understanding or remembering? What would you hope sticks with them, you know, one or two or
1: five years on down the line? That's such a great question. It's it's a challenging question, but it's it's such a great question. Um, And I think the one sort of the one takeaway I'd really want people to get from this book is an understanding of the diversity of the 19th century United States and the ways in which a migration that some might have seen as. The whitest of the white or the most middle class of the most middle class um, one that's dominated by folks who had some of the greatest political, economic and social power in the 19th century United States middle class white Protestants uh, mostly native born. Um, I want people to understand that even that story, even that migration of Westward white topped covered wagons is not as simple or narrow as we would think. And that in fact, by placing this migration in the context of forced removal and dispossession of native peoples, we come to a truer understanding of its history, both as experience and in historical memory, and that we only get closer to the past by expanding our perspective and by recognizing the agency of peoples who for a long time were overlooked by historians as historical actors. And so diversifying our perspective is is not something that simply derives from goals of the present and in fact diversifying our perspective is absolutely critical to better understanding the past because even an event that may have been perceived as completely white or as active in whitewashing which it is, can only be understood in this multicultural milieu of the United States.
0: And then for my last question, um, I know this book has not been out for very long, but uh, historians I know, uh, as one myself, like to have a few different projects going on at at the same time. So I'm curious, Sarah, what you've been working on, uh, either concurrently with this project or what you plan on working on now. Can we get a preview of uh, maybe uh, something uh, new coming out from you sometime in the uh, near or middle or
1: distant future? Sure, absolutely. So, um... I'm really interested in doing something with the history of women's suffrage. I was really interested to see all of the great scholarship that came out around the centennial in 2020. And one of the old questions has always been, why did women, or specifically white women in the West, get suffrage first? And I think that kind of like, As I done with trail history i'm interested in answering that question in new ways, and so i'm particularly interested in how women who travel the trail and also their male relatives make a case for their. citizenship rights and suffrage on the basis that they completed this journey alongside their their families, that they made it too. So we kind of have these competing narratives in the late 19th and early 20th century. As I mentioned, women are frail, they die on the trail, let's commemorate their graves. But then we have this other narrative of these women made it, they're strong, they they literally walked alongside male citizens to expand the West. And so I think there's something going on that's specific to the West as a region and also tied up in sort of embodied narratives of citizenship and who's not only um, morally and mentally fit for voting rights, but who's also physically fit. And so I'm interested in exploring the ways in which suffrage activists use things like climbing mountains, um, ascending in hot air balloons, going down into mines like the Comstock in Nevada as part of their campaign for voting rights. And for full suffrage,
0: almost, almost as if they're they're kind of physically proving their citizenship that you know that they're they're yeah that, that's exactly it that that sounds fascinating
1: oh thank you yeah well good yeah. I, now I know I'll have one person who will read it <laughs>
0: yeah not only that but when when it comes out um, no pressure or anything but we'll have to have you back on the show
1: <laughs> that'd be great thank you.
0: Dr. Sarah Keyes is an assistant professor of history at the University of Nevada, and her new book is American Burial Ground, a new history of the Overland Trail, which came out with the University of Pennsylvania, excuse me, the University of Pennsylvania Press in 2023. Uh, Thanks again for joining me today,
1: Sarah. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate the invitation.